here tonight to talk to you about killer whales. And I recognize for some of you at the back of the room, it's almost like being on a whale watching trip. You're at 100 meters. Uh, <laughs> hope you brought binoculars and just be thankful we're not at the 200 meter limit, which is now the, the new distance that people have to stay away from killer whales. Before I get into the specifics of Southern Resident Killer Whales, I do want to touch on sort of Orca 101. And I recognize that in Victoria, you are probably the, the most learned of all orcateers. I think that um, no other place has more articles published in your local newspaper than Victoria about the Southern Resident Killer Whales. Um, and so I realize for most of you, um, you probably know a lot of the basics. But I know there's at least a couple of people that just moved here and they may need to know a little bit more. So just before I get into the specifics of Southern Residents, um, it's important to know that we have four different populations of killer whales in British Columbia. Two of them are specialized in eating fish, primarily Chinook salmon, and one is the Southern Resident killer whales, which I'm talking about tonight. And they're the ones that are used this area, particularly in the summertime. We also have the Northern Residents, they're cousins to the north, there's a little bit of overlap in the southern part of BC, and they go up to the Alaska-Canadian border, and they're doing amazingly well. They also eat the same fish, but there's now about, I think the last count I saw was 309 animals, and they're growing. And they have been essentially since the 70s. We then have the transients, which is the most commonly seen whale currently, in terms of killer whales in the area, and they specialize in eating marine mammals. Uh, they don't like fish, they want to eat um, red-blooded um, animals and they're after marine mammals. Primarily the harbor seals, they also like harbor porpoise, so they can get some. Uh, they could take a dolphin or even a sea lion. And they're in here basically on a daily basis. That wasn't the way it was 20 years ago, but that's how it is today. And then there's this fourth group, which we call the offshores. And they're seen very rarely and they're called offshore because they spend most of their time offshore, and it's thought that their diet is specializing in sharks. And it was first guessed at because the teeth of the old animals are ground down to a pulp. And what else could grind your teeth down? But if you were to like chew on, on sandpaper, and you'd have this sort of grinding, and the thinking there is that young animals do the killing, so, so mom and dad can suck the livers out without having to do any chewing. It's a very strange specialty. But looking around the world, um, it's clear that killer whales are specialists. And different populations in different parts of the world have different preferred diets. Could be penguins, could be herring. Uh, no matter where you go, there's something unique about them. So that's just a bit of background. And what I want to talk about here tonight with you is more about some of these perceptions. Um, it doesn't seem to be a day that goes by that I don't receive some news about the southern resident killer whales. It wasn't that way in the 90s. It wasn't that way in the beginning of the 2000s. But in the past three years, and particularly this year, it's like a daily occurrence. We're hearing all the time about southern resident killer whales. And the sorts of things, and I've, I've written down some of the things that are said, and I hear these things over and over again. Um, we hear that there are just 74 left, although, when you look at the papers, last year there was just 76 left, and what there were just 78. But anyway, I've updated with today's numbers, there's just 74 left. Second, um, they've been declining for 20 years. Third, they are critically endangered. 
They are starving. They're the most contaminated animal on the planet. And finally, immediate action is required to save them from extinction. Has everybody heard these statements in one way or another? Would anyone like to tell me which one of these are actually true? In fact, only one of these statements is true. The others are either exaggerations or misinterpretations, or in some cases, even a little bit misleading. But this is what we hear repeatedly. So which one is true? I heard someone say number one, and that is true. There are 74 animals in the population. And one might take issue with the words just and left. And when I hear those words, it makes me realize that the person probably doesn't know what they're talking about exactly. This spring, I was at a graduate student seminar in Oregon. And at the seminar, it was graduate students specialized in marine mammals. And one young woman from University of Washington gave a talk about the southern resident killer whales. And her whole talk was about them, and it was about underwater noise and how it affects them. And she said, there's just 76 left. Well, immediately my antenna goes up and I go, I bet she doesn't know how many were actually there. And I decided I wasn't going to embarrass her in front of all the other graduate students, so I talked to her at lunch. And over lunch I said, so you said this, um, just 76 left, how many do you think there should be? And she thought for a minute and she said, um, I don't know. And then I said to her, well, how many were there in the past? And she thought, thought, said, I don't know. And that's really worrying because she's up there being a young student, presenting her research on the Southern Resident Killer Whales, and she doesn't know any of the history. All she knows is there's just 76 left, and if she's giving the talk today, she'd probably say there's just 74 left. So the question is, well, how many should there be? If you're saying this, how many should there be? Now, what I'd like you to do in the room here, and I suspect some of you do know the numbers, and I'm quite pleased I know I've got at least one of my former grad students is here. She knows, we've got some of the whale watch industry here, they know. Um, many people are well informed, but most people are not. And so just what I'd like you to do is say, well, because there's just 74 left, how many do I think there should be before we would feel this population was safe? Anybody got a number in their head? And also, I'm not gonna call anybody out, but you can if you want to give me a number. You think there should be 150? Because it's carrying capacity. Does anyone want to up that bid? So when I ask um, friends of mine that are not studying marine mammals, but are concerned about the health of the ocean, they will usually give me a number much higher than yours. You're very conservative on that. But they'll give me a number more like, um, I don't know, there should be about 500. Uh, weren't there once a thousand in this population? There's just 74 left. So what I'm going to do is show you the data. And this is a surprising thing to me is that it's quite seldom that anybody is shown the data. Um, you're told just one piece of number, which is true, there are currently 74 animals in the population. But what about the time series? And so I'm going to show you a graph here. <coughs> Um, and the data comes from the Center for Whale Research, and they've been the longest group led by Ken Balcom, uh, studying the southern resident killer whales and keeping track of them from one year to the next. And this time series 
goes all the way out here to 1960. That's a long time ago. That's before we had the big cruise ships, before we had the big oil tankers, before a lot of things changed on this coast. So what do you think the numbers look like? Well, first off, I'll point out the maximum up here is 100. So I've already underbid you. So here are the numbers. Um, here we are today at 74. And so what you'll see is these are based on using photographs to keep track of individuals. And the further we go in time, we've got really accurate ones because we, can, we know the date animals were born and can keep track of them. Um, and coming back, it's using photographs, also older photographs, to rebuild. The difference between this hatch period and here is that this has been reconstructed <coughs> using models. And this accounts for the killer whales that were removed for the aquarium industry. And so this was the primary population that was targeted. Um, and they were sent to SeaWorlds. Um, some even here locally were kept here. But they were taken out of this population. And it was done at a time when the current thinking was, at that time, was there's probably thousands of them without thinking that maybe there weren't. Maybe there was less than 100. So that's what we have there for a time series. And you'll notice that we've had periods of climbing, decreases, climbing but the highest ever was 98. So when I hear somebody say they've been declining for 20 years, like, what are they talking about? Um, well, what they're talking about is they fit a curve here from the highest number from 98 going out to at this point where there's data. And still the statement's repeated over and over, but no one's added on the extra four years to say they've been declining for 24 years. Well, anybody that's done some basic statistics would know that's not the way you fit the data. I mean, that's like if I fit the data and said, in fact, they've been increasing for 45 years. <laughs> that's a statistically significant relationship. But I am misleading you, particularly if I tell you that without showing you the data. So the reality is that over the past 57 years, or 58 years now, they have fluctuated. They've declined four times in the past. We understand this first decline, that was because of capturing them and removing them for the aquarium industry. We don't understand this decline. We don't understand this one. And we certainly don't understand this one either right now. The point on here is that we're right now here at 74. But look how many we had before, at a time we thought our oceans were relatively pristine, our Chinook populations were healthy, there were no whale-watching boats. Um, who was out there? And you see then, there were 70, 78. So on one way, when you see this data, you go, well, just a minute, like, where are we? Um, this isn't quite what I, was, what I was expecting to see. And I've had some people, when I show them this data, go like, where'd you get that data from? as though I made it up. These are the actual counts, but I would challenge you to find those counts anywhere on the internet. So I think the way we have to say this is not that there are just 74 left, um, unless you're gonna give somebody a sense of, of what the original number was. It's one thing if they were 150, 200, 300, but literally if our starting point, and who knows what was totally normal, but it suggests that the carrying capacity probably in the last 100 years has been about 100. 
or the maximum. And there's also some evidence from the genetics suggesting also going back 100 years that they haven't exceeded um, 100 animals. That doesn't mean that going back further in time there weren't more numerous, and there probably were, but certainly since um, about 1900, they probably never numbered more than 100. Um, we just talked about this. It's not fair to say they've been declining for 20 years. Um, if you're going to be accurate, you can say they've been declining for seven years. Um, and you might want to point out, you've seen fluctuations in numbers before. I'm not saying that the decline they're currently undergoing is necessarily natural, um, or that it isn't really bad news for the future, but it is consistent with some of the patterns we've seen going back 57 years. So are they critically endangered? Um, it turns out that there's no such thing as in Canada as being critically endangered. Um, that's a made-up term. In Canada, we list our species as not at risk, special concern, threatened, or endangered. Going critical is somehow upping it, um, but you're adding a value into that. And so why are they endangered? Um, if you go back and say, well, in some respects, one would look at the data to show you and say, well, they've been cycling. So are they really endangered? Well, the reason they are listed as endangered is because they are a very small population. And when you're under 100, you're going to be endangered forever. They're never, ever going to come off the list. They're endangered because of the risk of catastrophes happening in any small population. So they're endangered by virtue of being small. It's not because they've declined. Um, it's not because of other threats. It's because they are so small. So we're having a lot of different management actions happening now. There's been closures on fishing. Um, some areas have been shut down, restrictions on whale watching, uh, slowing of vessels, and everything is being done with the goal to have the population recover. We all want them to recover. So my question to you is, like, what does recovery look like? Um, and does everybody have an idea? So it's not like we want them to get back to 300. Uh, do we have a goal in this? And when I raise this with other killer whale biologists, they don't want to talk about this. And yet, Within Canada, we have a system for listing species, and typically you come off a list when you no longer meet the criteria. Well, in the case of killer whales, they're always going to be endangered. They're never coming off the list. So what do we want for recovery? And we might get some clues by looking at this figure here. So what would a recovered population look like? Because we can't set a goal to say we want 150, because that's probably never, ever going to happen. And so what are we going to do? We'll shut down all fishing. We should probably shut down all BC ferries. We should probably shut down all those cruise ships. Um, you can shut down everything, and there's no indication that they're going to get over 100. So I think we have to be realistic. And I think it's important in when stakeholders are being restricted to have them recover. Well, someone should be asking the question, so what's our goal here? What are we looking for? So you can't go to COSIWA criteria because there's no way that they're coming off that list. Um, but it doesn't mean we don't have to think about what we would feel is a secure population. One approach is to think about maybe some target total number. So 74 is, is and particularly a downward trend, is disconcerting. So maybe we want them back to the 80 whales that were present in 1979, before we saw this huge buildup of whale watching and everything else. Or maybe you want them at the all-time high which you're probably never going to get back to. 
but you might hit it at some point. So maybe we say we hit 98, and then we go, hallelujah, uh, they are recovered. Or maybe you want the long-term average of 83 animals. Or maybe you just want to keep them above 80, given that there's never been more than 100, as far as I know, in the past century. Whatever it is, we need to come up with something to decide whether or not any of the actions that are being put into place are actually affecting recovery. At this point, no one is discussing uh, when they've recovered. It just put out there in a very vague terms, which really gives license to make more restrictions because they're not recovered yet. But no one has defined what recovery means. Um, maybe we should be focused, though, on reproductive females. Because while they're 74, that's not really the effective population size. The males in this population, there's already too many of them, and they're not contributing to the population. And you're so small, you need more females, and you need reproductive females. So maybe this is what we should be focused on. Maybe we want 15, 20, 25. Maybe we need to run some models, some population viability analyses to see what is sustainable. Or maybe we just want to have a health index. And our idea of recovery is when everybody looks fat and healthy. Um, and maybe that's what our measure is of success. But at some point, someone's got to have this discussion. And so we can all work to achieve it. Um, so they are endangered and always will be. So are they starving? I, where did this idea come from that they're starving? And I looked at this a little bit, and it essentially comes back to photos of, in this case, J28. And on the left here, you can see a picture taken in September 2015 and in September 2016. And I'll just point out a couple of things on here. So you see nice and fat, and you see also the eye patches are sort of angled out, and here they're angled in, and you can see just how thin she is. And she died. Um, and using the drones, it's now possible to get a good measure of body health. So this animal died. Um, and so this sort of instilled the idea that there's a food problem. Uh, they are starving. And there's a second animal as well, similar pictures. Well, if I take you into the hospital here, and I'm going to take you into a cancer ward, I bet the first thing when you see these emaciated people is not, there's a food shortage in this hospital. Uh, why aren't they feeding these people? Um, there's something wrong. And for some reason, we disassociate this idea with animals that they too get cancers, they get diseases. Um, and the reason why we don't often see it in most wildlife is that they get eaten before um, you ever get to see that they are weakened and more vulnerable to predators. Top predators like killer whales, top predators like polar bears. In fact, there's the poster child of climate change showing that thin, emaciated bear in a little piece of ice. It has cancer. Um, and yet it's being put out there as it's a sign that the oceans have warmed um, and this poor bear can't find any seals, there's not enough ice. And so the public's been duped. But maybe that's okay. Because after all, we're all against climate change, and so what if we don't quite tell the truth to the public? But I think it's important to separate out um, cases of starvation, because if all the southern residents were in trouble, they'd all be thin and emaciated. So um, they're not starving, uh, but there's been some really good work being done from the U.S. From, through NOAA and they're now taking photos, aerial photos of all the whales. And what we do know is that on average, the southern residents are thinner than the northern residents. 
So they're eating the same fish in different areas, but they are thinner. So it does point to there being a food problem. It does indicate nutritional stress, but not starvation. It's not a starving case. And particularly when you get one animal or two in a population, you have to remember that uh, the residents are quite remarkable because they share food. It seems quite unlikely they would let an uncle, a niece, a sister starve um, when there's a basis for sharing food among them. Um, here's a picture taken in September, and you may recognize uh, J50 um, and J16. So J50 was also called Scarlet, swimming next to her mother. Uh, and this was just before she disappeared. And so you can see that she's clearly sick, and there were lots of attempts to um, do things. It was everything from we got a feeder, and some people were trying to dangle fish in front of her to feed her. Uh, there were attempts to uh, shoot antibiotics into her, and it was done. Um, and then there were also uh, thoughts that she needed deworming as well. And it really was sort of kind of desperate shots in the dark. I mean, it seems pretty clear, and I'm not a vet, but I look at it and go, this doesn't look like a cold to me. This is more than the flu. Uh, unfortunately, her body was not recovered, and so we'll have no way of knowing. For many people, they will walk away saying, this animal starved. Um, I suspect if, it, if a necropsy had been done, it would be cancer, it would be, cancer, or it would be something else uh, very serious that had her just wasting away. Um, these are pictures that just came out two days ago. And um, I'm not sure how many of you have seen it. So this is K25. He's a 27-year-old male. And on the left, um, you can see a picture taken in 2016, and on the right, taken in 2018. And so again, you can pick up how much thinner he is now um, compared to two years ago. So nice and fat here. Look at the eye patches coming out here, and uh, depression back here behind his blowhole. So clearly not in good body shape. So do we have another case here of starvation? Uh, what's going on in this case? And this is one where, uh, from NOAA, who put this out, they're very good about actually giving information to the public about this case, because it's quite remarkable. What you probably don't know about him is that his mother died between the time these two pictures were taken. And within the resident killer whales, if you were born a male, like you, you'd stay with your mother the rest of your life. You would never have a breakaway. And males stay with their mothers for life. Um, and it turns out that mothers help their sons by giving them a little bit of extra food, uh, supplementing. And so there's a pattern noticed in the past, looking at life tables, sort of uh, survival rates, that there was a tendency for males to have a higher mortality rate after the mothers die. And the thinking now, based on observations of animals sharing food, is it isn't just the dying of a broken heart. Um, it's also dying, in this case, of perhaps not getting enough food to stay up there. And there's a, evolutionarily, there's an advantage for a mother to supplement her son because he's got a better chance of breeding, passing on the family genes. And so you can, we can make an argument for why mothers would be uh, kind to their sons. Um, so, and finally, this is probably the only piece of good news I have for you tonight. Because uh, in many ways, it's quite a sad story overall. But there are new pregnancies. And this is from two different animals here, showing you J17 and J27. 
And this was just before she gave birth, and you can see that she is looking a bit heavy. Um, and over here, J27, this is taken in 2018, and you'll see that she's also looking uh, heavy in here. So, but it isn't just this one animal. They're also reporting that there are females in all three of the pods. So the southern residents have J, K, and L pods, and they're reporting that there are females in all the pods that are pregnant. Now, it doesn't mean that we're going to have a baby boom next year, um, because there's also within this population a high proportion of reproductive failures. We've never really been able to predict pregnancies until the drones. And so literally this is brand new to be able to track individual animals to monitor their health. And, but there is a good chance you'll be hearing of new babies. And they desperately need new babies. But not just any baby, they need females. And one of the problems has been they're giving birth to way too many males. The sex ratio of birth is skewed towards males. And if you're a small population, you don't need more daddies. Uh, you need mums. And that's what's been missing. The northern residents have about a 50-50 sex ratio. And it's not clear with the southerns why this is. Um, but one of the things that tells me here is that if you're seeing this many females getting pregnant, it's also an indication that food is probably better than what we've been thinking. Because typically with wild animals, if they are showing any signs of food stress, uh, one of the things they're going to give up first is reproduction. Um, they're not as fertile, and they're going to take care of survival first. So hearing this news this week that so many females are pregnant is, is the first good news and maybe an indication that things are not as bleak and as dire as we've been predicting. So they're not starving, but they are thinner on average than the northern residents, so suggesting nutritional stress. Are they the most contaminated animal on the planet? And I really don't know what the basis of this is, if you want to talk about contamination, look for belugas in the St. Lawrence River. Look at the transient killer whales. They feed at a whole trophic level above the um, fish eaters. Uh, they are the most contaminated, and yet they are increasing. And they've been increasing since the 70s. And so while they may well be extremely contaminated, um, it's not affecting birth rates or survival rates at this point. Um, so what's true to say here is that they're not the most contaminated marine mammal. Like all, mam all marine mammals, they carry contaminants. They are among the most contaminated, but most marine mammals carry a lot of contaminants. And the only real issue seems to be that when a female, or a male in this case, loses weight, they may mobilize uh, some of the contaminants, and uh, that could cause an effect. And the other interesting thing that was noted is that males accumulate contaminants all through life, and the contaminants are coming from like PCBs, fire retardants that are sprayed in furniture that comes into the Salish Sea. Um, but if a female gives birth, she actually passes most of the contaminant load to her offspring through milk. So the females are relatively clean, um, and that's the key to the population. It's the males that, that gather it for life. Um, the other curious thing on here is about these other populations. The southern resident killer whales, they're an outlier. Um, they are not like the other populations. So the offshores are increasing, the transits are increasing, the resident whales to the north that also share some habitat with the southerns, they're increasing. Uh, the Alaska population is increasing. And then we look at other populations. How many of you have seen humpback whales here? Right? They're increasing. Uh, they've come back. They, were, they disappeared for 100 years. What about white-sided dolphins? Um, they're back. 
in here. What about all these seals and sea lions? They're here. Um, and so many ways, when you look at the health of the ocean, because I've had people tell me, and I read this as well, they say, um, you know, the, the sun-risen killer whales, they're the canary in the coal mine, or they're the bellwether, and if they're in trouble, the whole ecosystem's collapsing. Well, I'm not seeing the collapse. Um, yes, the southern residents, something isn't working for them, but everybody else doesn't seem to be having the same problem. And yet these are all top predators. So why just this one population? So they carry contaminants. But given that females can expel the contaminants by giving birth and nursing their young, um, it doesn't seem to be affecting population size. And finally, and this has been more recent with the, the court action that I think six of the NGOs are going to take, um, they want an emergency order from cabinet to take immediate action to save the southern residents from extinction. And I think this is, first, I can't imagine, yes, you, you can make this declaration, but I don't think this is going to help the killer whales at all. In fact, my guess is it'll take researchers from DFO away to start writing court briefs to go to court to explain what's being done. Um, it does help the campaign against the pipeline, but I don't think it helps the killer whales. In fact, I think it might do harm. Because the truth of it is that actions are being taken to protect killer whales. It may not save them, but no one's ever said what the goal was, what we're trying to get them to. But there certainly are many actions that have come in in the past year, many of which are affecting people in this room. These include uh, fishing restrictions, it includes whale watching restrictions. So some areas have been closed for fishing. Uh, the numbers of fish they've retained have been halved in some areas. Uh, whale watching restrictions are being pushed from up to 200, out to 200 meters. Um, some of the whale watching fleets are not looking at southern residents anymore, uh, keeping away from them. That's voluntary. Uh, there have been reduced vessel speeds, which have been voluntary, but could well become mandatory. Although it's not even clear whether or not reduced vessel speeds is going to help, but it's a possibility. And finally, there's talk of money coming from the federal government for water treatment here in Victoria, as well as in uh, West Vancouver as well. And so actions have been taken, uh, and many of these actions have been taken without consultation as well, to know whether or not they'll be effective. Um, the thinking is, well, it can't hurt the whales, um, but for some people, there's a firm belief these will, these will benefit and have them recover. So I was asked by somebody, like, how do we get here? So the up and downs, I and other people that have been involved in studying marine mammals, we've known this for a long time. So why is it now that everyone's running around, but it's like Chicken Little crying, the sky is falling, the sky is falling? And I was asked, like, how do we get here? And I didn't know. So I actually went to the um, our faculty of science, and they have a team that does research. And I asked them for help. I said, could you do a search for me and tell me all the media stories about southern resident killer whales that you can find? And I figured if I looked through the newspapers and magazines, and, and UBC has access to sort of track uh, things that are going on, and this was an interesting project. So they found the earliest article was published in 1992. And this is what you see about media articles for southern resident killer whales. So it starts in 1992. Um, and then you'll see this exponential rise, and I predict we'll be here, we're probably like over a thousand for this year alone. So something just took off. Now here's a few things that might interest you. 
Uh, first is we found 2,032 articles uh, that talked about southern resident killer whales. 50% uh, were in newspapers. And look at the number one source of information, the Times Colonist. Uh, if anyone's from there, congratulations. Uh, <laughs> Vancouver Sun takes second and Canadian Press going wider. 60% uh, of all the articles written are in the past four years. 50% are in British Columbia, only 10% in the United States. And I found that one really fascinating. The Americans, they're all over the story now, and I bet once I add in the data, I did this up to April, um, we'll find the Americans now are catching up. But they basically ignored this population. It was just Ken Balcom uh, basically leading his own research effort, and only recently have the Americans uh, taken charge. 10% um, were, 40% uh, were in other Canadian provinces. 10% um, were like telling good news stories about whales. 90% were either neutral or negative. So the next thing I did with this, trying to understand like, how did the dial get changed? Like, is there something that really pushed this? And what we did is we looked for the frequently used words in the headlines and in the lead. So the lead in a newspaper article is that first sentence. That basically tells you everything you need to know that's important. So we did a word search and we add up all the words and then we produce these word diagrams. And I realized that from the back, unfortunately you can't see too well, it's a circle of lots of words, but going from 92 to 2015, so we've got whale in here, but we've got baby, orca, new, um, and then endangered. So that was the news. So every time there was a baby reported, that made the news, Time Colonist told that story. Uh, when Canada listed them as endangered, that became news as well. And if I'd shown you every year separately, they all look the same, except the endangered shows up later. Well, look what happened in the next year. Everything just changes, 2016. Things blew up. And what do we see in here? We've got words like, um, uh, let's see, federal protection, endangered again. But we start to see words like pipeline, noise, uh, government, I think Trans Mountain is in here. Um, and essentially, it all got changed in 2016 as they became the poster child for a new campaign. Before this, it was, it was humpback whales until Canada uh, recognized there were now more humpbacks than before whaling started. And then the dial got changed to killer whales. And here we are, 2017, 2018. Uh, the key words that pop out in here, we've got things about research, researchers, studies. Uh, we've got trans here, southern expansion, protect marine, federal, salmon, noise. And now, essentially, everything's, everything's been put in. It isn't just people talking about the risk of strikes from the uh, oil tankers they're all, and the noise from oil tankers. They're talking about salmon. Uh, they're talking about noise from whale-watching boats. They're talking about disturbance. Everything's been thrown in here. So that's where we are today. So what about risks and realities? So first I'm gonna put up here is, and we hear this repeated often, right? It's like contaminants, it's fishing, it's noise, it's vessel disturbance. And it's like a mantra that's put out. So noise, ship strikes, and disturbance. And these are some of the things that are said, like this statement here, there's, we're worried about the sevenfold increase in tanker traffic. Has everybody heard that statement before? Sevenfold increase. Whenever you're told about the percentage change, ask somebody, would you tell me what the denominator is? Right, because sevenfold, that sounds like there's gonna be thousands, thousands. Well, the sevenfold is gonna take us from two tankers per week to 14. 
So for some, that's a lot. But I didn't hear anybody complain when BC Ferries put on over 320 extra sailings during a long weekend. Right? Like, those vessels go much faster than these tankers. They make way more noise. That's the biggest source of noise. And who's out there saying, I want you to stop sailing to Vancouver Island? <laughs> we should, because we've got to save the whales. Um, we're comparing 14, uh, sorry, an extra 12, to hundreds and hundreds of sailings. Is anybody talking about the new container ports that's going to be put in? All those vessels that are coming in? Um, what about all the cruise ships? Um, and yet we talk about, and, and the numbers aren't given, because if you really want to mislead, and we teach this to our students, um, how statistics get misused, and that's just to give a percentage. Don't tell them what your denominator is. That just confuses the facts. Uh, um, and then whale watching boats as well. Um, and there has been concern about whether or not noise is masking the ability of whales to find fish. Uh, there's also been concern about whether or not whales that are chasing fish are disrupted by too many vessels present. Um, there's no data to show that, nor is any data being collected to test it, but it's an assumption and actions have been put into place to keep vessels further away on the assumption that it can't hurt. At the same time, it's pretty clear that as the population keeps growing and everybody loves whales more and more, that something needs to be done to um, give the whales a break. Uh, contaminants, and yes, they are a problem. They're a problem for all mammals. Um, I'm sure if I could take a biopsy from all of you, I could also tell you your PCB levels and dioxins and other things. Um, but there's no indication that it is negatively affecting the whales. Um, it's put out there as a thing, and it's in all marine mammals. But there's no indication that it's actually having a direct effect. Prey availability, and certainly the best evidence we have based on animals being thinner on average is that it has something to do with fish and not enough. They have specialized in Chinook, the largest of the salmon species. But it's also a species that is available year-round. And one of the problems has been that people are forever looking at the Salish Sea or Wanafuca Strait as it's our backyard, as though this is the entire habitat for killer whales. And the reality is that their habitat goes from sort of halfway up the island all the way down to California. And, and this is the northern limit of their range. Um, they don't spend their whole lives here. Um, and if you look and know anything about the history of salmon returns, that over 50% of the Chinook in North America used to come out of California and Oregon. And not only that, but they had, they had all four types of runs. They had spring Chinook, summer, fall, and winter Chinooks, unique runs. Um, those fish are basically all decimated. There's hardly anything left for them. And so, but yet we don't talk about what used to support the population. Instead, we look as though the problem is in our backyard. Um, the habitat goes much further. Um, and same, so they've lost significant habitat, um, significant winter habitat when things are toughest for them. Um, there's concern about overfishing, and that's thrown out constantly, but I was on an independent um, panel of academics from Canada, U.S., and we were asked by the U.S. government and Canadian government to look into this question. And by our estimate, there were over 600,000 fish coming in here, and we couldn't see any sign of there being a food shortage during the summertime. I recently ran a workshop at UBC last fall for DFO, and we had also U.S. and Canadian government biologists there and scientists and independents um, that know salmon and know, and know killer whales as well. 
and also the consensus was that restricting fishing would not uh, result in any marked change in kilowell numbers. There's no evidence of there being a shortage. And that report is available online, but it was not referenced by the government in making decisions later. Uh, and finally, we got climate change on there. And climate change is something that, when you look at the projections for salmon, particularly for Chinook, uh, things are not good for them. And Chinook baby is probably gonna be one of the, um, uh, the biggest losers. And we, we, we may well end up having to build hatcheries at river mouths uh, to produce Chinook, because probably the wild fish are not gonna make it up the rivers to survive and spawn. So that's been a, a big concern. And finally, the other big risk I think to them are the northern resident killer whales. I don't know what we're gonna do about this one. So you've got the northern residents, they are growing. And, and the population that is growing the fastest, it's, it's part of the G's, the G clan. And they're the ones that use the area further south. So if any of you have been up to Johnson Strait, you see mostly the A's up there, sometimes some of the I's. Uh, but the, the G's tend to be down further south. They're the fastest growing population of killer whales. And so you have to ask yourself, so wait a minute, one group is starving and their cousins that overlap with them are having no trouble at all and they're increasing. And I suspect that what's happening here is that there's some competitive exclusion and the northern residents are gonna need more territory. And you may well end up with them pushing the southern residents further south where their habitat can't support them. So there's a good chance that the real threat for them ultimately will be the northern residents. And I can't see anybody deciding we're gonna remove the northern residents. Um, and so if you run one scenario out in the future, it is conceivable that the southern residents could go extinct. Um, probably not in my lifetime or many of yours, um, but um, possibly in your lifetime. You get to watch that. Um, but you're always gonna have killer whales because the northern residents would come down and uh, fill that void. And for those that work on a daily basis or see them, that's just like such a tragedy. Animals and essentially families that you've got to know uh, may not make it but it is a real possibility, and we should be talking about this. So what lies ahead? Um, I'd say right off the bat, the prognosis for southern residents is poor. Um, they've had bad luck in terms of having too many male newborns. Uh, maybe we'll see if some of these new pregnancies result in females. They've gotta get female blood in somehow. Um, they've lost habitat in California and Oregon. I'm not hearing a whole lot of discussion about how they're gonna restore salmon in, in California. They need water, but we like to eat strawberries. So this is trade-off. Um, you need agriculture and people need to drink the water and the Chinook may be one of the casualties. Um, there's growing climate change impacts on Chinook and the worst is yet to come. And there's also a very high likelihood of the Southerns being replaced by the Northern residents. Are there gonna be more restrictions? And certainly there are many individuals and groups that want to see more restrictions. And I'm not quite sure what those new restrictions will be. You're gonna start cutting back on BC ferry sailings. Um, they make over 50% of the noise. Uh, they go much faster. So maybe that's the next step. Maybe it's to shut down more fishing. Um, I don't know what they are, but certainly there are groups that want immediate action. And the actions that have been taken are deemed not to be sufficient. And yet there's no data to support doing more is gonna change anything. And the other part I'm gonna end on here is this very intensive research effort. And for the most part, Canadian researchers have focused on the northern residents and the southern residents were studied by American biologists, not even government biologists until just recently. That's changed under the Ocean Protection Plan. The Canadian government put in a lot of money for research and so there's been new people hired 
and they started research this past year in the Juan de Fuca Strait, and they've also given some money to the University of Victoria, some to the Vancouver Aquarium, and some to UBC as well. Um, and so there's cooperation, a lot more research is being done, but at the same time, it's not clear if the public is getting the right information. So we talked about these public perceptions, and hopefully when you leave tonight, you're leaving with as an informed public, knowing that there are 74 whales, and they've numbered less than 100 for the past century. They've been declining for seven years. Uh, they've gone uh, up and down four times in the past 58 years. They are endangered and always will be. Um, they are thinner and average than the northern residents, suggesting they are nutritionally stressed. Um, they carry contaminants, but no evidence that that is negatively affecting their numbers. Um, and actions are being taken to protect them that include fishing restrictions, whale watching restrictions, reduced vessel speeds, and waste treatment plants, although there's no scientific data to suggest these are going to be effective. For research, um, I just want to touch briefly on one study that I'm involved with, and we've been working in collaboration with some of the sport fishing guides that have been helping us as we're trying to understand the food. Everything points back to food, and we need to figure out in BC, is there enough food here for them, yes or no? Um, or are they showing up here thin because of what's in the U.S.? Is this a Canadian problem or is it a made in America problem? <laughs> um, but we have no data, and so we're working on that. And I'm going to show you a little video here. It's produced by this student, also an alumni from UBC. His name is Philippe Roberge, and he just graduated. And last, or this spring, he came to me and he wanted to do um, a directed studies. And what he wanted to do was, because there's no course that he wanted, he wanted to tell science stories using video. And I thought, well, that's kind of neat. And so I made up a course for him. And I just worked in one-on-one, -on -one and he produced um, four different videos. He did research to figure out how long a video should be and what it has to contain. And he's a very talented filmmaker and storyteller. And I teach science communication at UBC. And so when I find a student that actually understands science but wants to tell it, I said, great. So he did this, and then he got hired by the Beattie Museum to tell a science story. He actually is telling, I think, five stories. And so he decided to do the first one with me and my research associate, May Sato, who just started with me in January. And so Philippe came up and uh, he filmed this, and I'm going to show you what an undergraduate can produce. So here's his four-minute video, and we'll let you watch it. And it talks about our research at UBC. And let's see. Please work. Southern resident killer whales are endangered, and we're trying to find out if it's because they can't get enough salmon to eat. Our study uses hydroacoustic technologies to look at beneath the surface of the ocean, trying to figure out how many fish there are, what kind of fish there are, and where they are. Konnichiwa, Sato Mei desu. Watashi wa ima British Columbia Daigaku de orka to sake no seitai kei nitsuite shirabeteimasu. Southern resident killer whales are very picky on what they feed on. So there are five different species of salmon in British Columbia, and they feed on mostly shinnik salmon. That's the most energy-rich and the largest among all the species. So what we are trying to do is to figure out whether there is enough shinnik salmon for southern resident killer whales to feed. Part of our study is trying to compare the declining southern resident population with the increasing northern residents. When we look at their body conditions, the southern residents are thinner on average. 
compared to the northern residents. And that's our strongest clue to suggest that the problem is food availability. They're simply not getting enough to eat. So our typical day starts four in the morning. We wake up and quickly eat the breakfast and pack up the van with the gear and then drive to the marina. So when we get to the marina, we load all our gear to the small vessel then leave the marina by 6 a.m. Once we get to the site, we deploy the CTD, which, is con which measures conductivity, temperature, and pressure, providing us some environmental parameters where the Chinook salmons are uh, staying. Then we use the multi-frequency echo sounders, which have four frequencies from 38 to 200 kilohertz. By having multiple frequencies, we can separate fish from zooplankton or perhaps a different species of the fish. So we're using technology to find fish. In fact, we're using the same technology that killer whales have used forever. They too send out sound and it bounces off the prey back to them and they get it in their melon. And from that, they can visualize what's there. And they're finely tuned to identify Chinook salmon in particular and go for them. Killer whales can like sweep across the frequencies. So I'm pretty sure they, they're getting way more information than we have. So that's why probably they can detect the Chinook from other salmon. We are using a similar technology, but not quite yet as sophisticated as a killer whale is using. And also we need a small vessel to deploy it. And we also need to validate with a small sport fishing techniques. When we look at the surface, it almost looks like a desert, and it's hard for us to imagine how rich these waters are. And yet, if you look at the surface, you see the seabirds that are feeding. You see the seals, the sea lions, the white-sided dolphins, the humpback whales. Um, this is such a rich ocean. And it's been, therefore, so puzzling when we look at the southern residents, because everybody else is doing so well. The southern residents are a, an outlier. Why can't they make it when all the other species that are feasting on, on all this prey that are in the ocean are doing so well? Why can't the southern resident killer whales do it as well? And, and, and that's been so puzzling to us, and uh, we hope to get to the bottom of it. When we look at a problem as serious as why are southern resident killer whales declining, um, you think, well, maybe a killer whale specialist could answer that question themselves. But in fact, we need more than just a killer whale biologist. We need people who understand acoustics, who understand how to look for fish underwater. We need to work with nutritionists. We need to work with laboratories that can analyze the fish. It takes a whole team to come together to solve this problem. Thank you very much. So I'm happy to take any questions. Is there a problem with interbreeding? And so there's no interbreeding with the, uh, between northerns and southerns. They're not uh, kissing cousins. And it's been sort of interesting. The uh, DFO has had a hydrophone, sort of underwater listening uh, tape recorder out in Shiftshore Bank. And the amazing thing is that when the southerns residents are there, we can see the period of time. 
and when they're not there, we see the northern residents are there. And it suggests that perhaps when the northerns show up, the southerns have to leave. Um, so in terms of breeding, there is, there is inbreeding in the southern residents. Uh, two males in particular are responsible for most of the uh, matings. Uh, one male seems to like younger females, and one likes the mature ladies. Um, and that's been another concern is, is the extent of, of uh, inbreeding. But they've been a small population, presumably the, they've had um, inbreeding for a long time. So the question is, um, I mentioned how very likely they had cancers is something we've seen in their tissues. Um, and no, we, I've, I've not seen it in the killer whales. The unfortunate thing with the killer whales is that when they die, uh, because they are so emaciated at a point, they sink. And so the likelihood of recovering a body to do a test we have seen it with sea lions, and, and so we've seen it with everything from sea lions that I've kept and cared for, and we've had a couple die of cancer. We've tried to treat them with radiation. We've tried a few things with them. Uh, we've seen also animals in the wild similarly. So we know firsthand where we've seen this um, without predators coming in to remove them. Is it significant? I would say um, not among sea lions, probably no more significant than among humans, um, probably less than, than among humans because we also have a lot of environmental factors that influence our cancer rates. But cancer is part of being a mammal, and cells divide in, uh, in unusual ways. Yes? So um, the comment, maybe the mic we can pass around too. Okay, good, then I'll pay attention to the mic. Um, that um, Ken Balcom has made the comment, and he's, he's, he's said it more recently than just a couple years ago too, that what we really need is more fish in all the rivers. Um, and so there's no doubt that more fish everywhere is going to be beneficial. Um, and, our, and our salmon populations, particularly Chinook and Coho, are down. Um, but at the same time, fishing has been regulated in a way to try to ensure a fairly constant number coming through. Um, and so what it's meant during these declines has been people are being allocated fewer of those fish. I don't see that putting more fish into BC waters is going to result in the southern residents recovering or, or seeing increased numbers. We're seeing the northern residents that are staying within BC are doing fine with what's here. Now one can say maybe they get first crack at the fish. There's nothing left for the southern residents. We know that there is increased competition. We also have sea lions that take adult fish. Um, and so there's other factors at play. If I was to take Ken's advice, I'd say where we need the fish is back in California. We need it back in Oregon. Um, really the best they've got is what's here. Um, and the worst. And what they really need in the wintertime, I think, is off California. I think they particularly need the fall Chinook, the, the fish that are staying in the coastal areas year-round. Um, and if any of you are fishing, and I suspect some of you do fish here, you know that you know, particularly in, in the Salish Sea in the last couple of years, it's some of the best Chinook fishing that they've seen in about 20 years. And that suggests that, certainly for the fall runs, that they seem to be in fairly good shape, or at least better than what they've been, I'm waiting to hear what the returns are going into the Fraser. Um, I haven't heard that yet, but we know that the fish going offshore, uh, the spring Chinook, that they've been basically decimated, and their numbers were really low this summer. And so the killer whales are really intercepting a lot of the spring fish coming in, as well as getting the larger fall fish that are going back up. But I think where we really need those fish is in the full range, and just don't focus on the northern limit of the range, uh, where they overlap and compete with the northern residents. Sorry, I didn't hear the question. Uh, what's a small gene pool? Um, I don't know they carry more recessive genes other than um, there is more inbreeding, fewer males, just a few males account for most of the breedings. Uh, there's been some accounts of 
father-daughter pairings, uh, mother-son pairings, um, uncle-niece. Uh, so there's been a number of these sorts of meetings as well occurring. And so that's been expressed as a concern, but, but it's never been pointed out as actually causing a problem. We've certainly seen major bottlenecks of species that were hunted almost to extinction, like elephant seals. And in fact, now some of you may have seen elephant seals, but in the late 1800s, they were thought to be extinct. And then there was a collecting party that came from the Smithsonian um, Museum in, in Washington, D.C., and they discovered them off Mexico and found, I think it was like seven or eight, and they couldn't believe it. They thought they were extinct, and they shot them. Well, they didn't have them in their museum. Uh, and this was the last chance to document the species existed. Um, that was the thinking at the time. And of course, since then, um, it became apparent that there were probably about 100, and we were now seeing them increasing. Uh, Guadalupe fur seals is the same story. Uh, they were thought to be extinct. Um, they live also in Mexico, and a fisherman discovered um, a small group of, I think, five or six. He offered them for sale to the San Diego Zoo. They wouldn't buy them, so he shot them. Um, and that, too, turns out there are a few more that he did not know about. So we have this repeat history where things have come from very small numbers and serious bottlenecks. But in terms of the inbreeding, it's expressed as a concern, but nobody has demonstrated um, a true impact. Uh, so the question about do they only eat Chinook, and, and this has bothered so many people. Um, so no, they don't only eat Chinook. Chinook is their preferred prey. It makes up the majority of their diet. Uh, in the fall, a significant amount of chum salmon appears in their diet, but the Chinook are available year-round to them. Uh, in the wintertime, there's also indication of eating other fish. Some of the bottom fish as well are being consumed. Uh, I got reports from the summer, because everybody's on this, and people send me stuff and say, you know, I was out on Shore Bank, and they were eating black cod. And I've got photos to prove it. Um, I've got uh, people up in... Um, Johnson Strait saying, um, I saw them eating sockeye. And so, yes, I think when we do have instances where you have these high densities of fish, they're taking them, uh, but their staple diet, what they're really depending on has been, has been Chinook salmon. And that's based on observations of kills, collecting scale samples, uh, a few stomach samples from dead animals. And so I think that data is pretty sound, but it's also becoming clear that, that there are many exceptions to that as well. The other question about why don't they just get together? And um, I think it's a, about, you know, when, you th when we think about the First Nations, and like, why don't all those tribes just join together? Um, you know, there are family rivalries. Um, each group has its own dialect, culture, associations, and it's about ensuring your family basically is going to survive. And so they are not uh, friendly to each other. Or you think they're in the same boat, why can't they just get along? But um, it's uh, essentially uh, a dog-eat-dog -dog world. But you know it's tough out there, and the real goal in life is to ensure that your progeny survive and uh, make it um, to carry on your gene pool. So there is no indication that they're going to um, get on together. And if anything, I, I do fear that the Northerns are going to start pushing south. Their, their numbers, they just can't keep growing. And either they're going to stop at over 300, and if you go back to the 70s, there were about the same numbers of northerns as southern residents at that time. And things are very different today. And so either they're gonna get more territory or their birth rate's gonna curtail in some way. Um, but time will tell what happens to them. Here we go. Let me see if this mic works. Yeah, uh, I, was, I was particularly interested in the, uh, the, the, uh, 
the coverage you gave of the press coverage that this uh, topic has received over the past years, uh, in particular the irony that there's more information coming out now uh, and more of it seems to be negative or bad or based on, uh, on, on, on misunderstood or poorly communicated information. And I was wondering, uh, quite coincidentally today, there was an article uh, in the BBC, uh, on the BBC website, Pollution Threatens the Future of Killer Whales, uh, suggesting uh, that based on an article that was recently published in Science, uh, it concluded that some populations such as those around the UK, the Strait of Gibraltar, off Brazil, Japan, California, are almost certainly doomed. And I'm just wondering how you would put that into the context of What's been interesting is we, we hear about, you know, it used to be there was sort of one killer whale expert in British Columbia, and his name was Dr. John Ford, and then we had another killer ex expert, Ken Belcom. Um, John retired, and now we've got 100 killer whale experts, <laughs> right? And the media doesn't know who to talk to. Um, who's the authority on this? And everybody with an opinion can say what they like. Uh, the media don't know. I mean, I listened the other morning to CBC, um, and the, the woman doing the interview was speaking with the Minister of Environment, and she was just nailing the minister, saying, and what about that sevenfold increase in, in tanker traffic? And the minister was diverting the question. And then I, I, I did an interview with the same re re reporter, and I said, remember when you asked the minister about the sevenfold? Do you have any idea what the denominator is? Or the denominator? He said, well, how many do you think that is? How many thousands of vessels do you think it was? And she was shocked. Uh, and so the media are also repeating the same lines I showed you at the beginning. It's become in, built into our psyche. Um, and when you start talking to the reporters, and there's some that are trying to get it right, uh, maybe we should have a chat with the Times colonist. I haven't seen their articles recently. But um, the trouble is that there's a lot of misinformation. I would say from NOAA in the US, I see them doing a better job of talking to the public and giving them factual information. Um, I'm not hearing as much coming out from Canada. Uh, the groups that are speaking Canada are typically speaking anti-research. The time research is over. We've got immediate action. We've got to stop this, stop this, stop this. And they're not speaking with facts, a lot of rhetoric, and they're getting most of the coverage. And so I think, um, I don't know where the responsibility lies. Should the reporters try to figure what the facts are? But there's a lot of misinformation, and it's causing, I think, a lot of confusion in Ottawa as well. Um, I don't know where to go. Uh, you wanted to do a follow-up, did you? Yes, just a quick follow-up. Uh, you probably answered this prior in your in your answer to me before, but I didn't quite hear it. And I'm in British Columbia, so it can't affect California or Oregon or Washington. So what's the best thing that I can do to help the southern killer, killer whales here? Uh, write your congressman. <laughs> uh, um, there, there is, it's interesting, there's a governor's task force um, it's got Oregon and Washington. Uh, I don't know where California is, is on all this. Uh, there is a need to, in fact, I, last week we had a UBC, the Larkin Lecture, and it was given by the, the lead um, salmon biologist from California. And I was talking to him about my theories about where I think the trouble is, and I really think it is California for the Southern residents. He said, you know what? I said the same thing. I wrote this memo, and nobody would buy into it. Um, he's also concerned by what's happened there. And so he and I are now going to work on a paper together to point out what's happened to the Chinook that the killer whales used to feed on. And, but it's hard when everybody is just focused on, it's British Columbia, it's the Salish Sea, but it's being driven by the rhetoric for the pipeline. And 
you know, unfortunately, if, if I can get labeled as being pro-pipeline because I'm trying to point out what the facts are, and that's not it, it at all. I think the public deserves to hear what the facts are. I think at a university, um, we have a responsibility to separate fact from fiction. Uh, although I have discovered marine mammals uh, really stir up the emotions. I've gotten death threats over some of the comments. Just saying that, that humpback whales had recovered, that can elicit a death threat because it goes counter to somebody's beliefs. Um, and often the facts aren't well accepted. So I think at a university what I see a role is, is to not take a side, but to try to present the facts and uh, let the public um, mull on that and make decisions together. And I'm happy to, so up here I put my email address. Um, I didn't get my phone number, but. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm easy to find on the UBC directory and I'd be happy to talk to anybody either after this or if you wanna give a call. Um, I'd like to hear what you have to say and uh, talk about some of this further with you. So I'd welcome that. Thanks.